Good morning, Anthem. It's good to see everyone wide awake with your extra hour of sleep. Congratulations on getting that. Um, or for the parents like me who have children under six, uh, hope you enjoyed waking up an hour early. Uh, <laughs> it's good to see you guys this morning. We're, last week we had, uh, we, we looked at the resurrection of Lazarus, this amazing news that we have of how in Jesus Christ, death has been conquered. Death no longer has the final word. And, and I, I remember in college, uh, in my freshman year, was when I really took hold of the gospel. And I remember it coming home to me, this reality of the resurrection and this life that we have in Jesus. And, and, I, I, and, and here's the thing. I don't know about you, but that was an amazing reality. And I remember I started reading everything I could on it. I started thinking about what that meant. But, but this thing started in my soul that I didn't realize was a little bit off the trajectory of where Scripture was trying to take me with that reality. Which was, I started, a, it was almost like this weird prosperity gospel thing. Where, where I started to think that what the resurrection meant, by prosperity gospel, I mean that the gospel is just about just improving our lives, just making life better. And, and, the more, and, and it's all just about being blessed. And that, that's the state forever. And, and one of the things I realized was I, I started assuming that this idea of the resurrection and having life in Jesus meant that, I guess you would say, life would just get better and better. That it was just all about always being in a state of happiness. It was all about just, you know, one day having a, a career that would work, having a family that would work, having a life that just gets better and better. Kind of it's all rainbows and butterflies from there because Jesus has died, so we don't have to. And I realized, I, re- I remember reading then, because I was reading everything I could, and, and I had this assumption, and, and don't get me wrong, when we follow Christ, we're obedient to Christ, often our, our lives do on the whole get better in the sense that we avoid entanglements and there's all kinds of consequences in our lives that, that just don't come about. There is a deep abiding joy, but what is the nature of that joy, that life that Christ gives us in this life? See, I remember as I was reading and trying to understand this, I, I was given a book by one of my disciples called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you have probably heard of it. If you have never heard of it, uh, I would highly recommend you read it, The Cost of Discipleship. And I remember I came to this line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man or woman, (laughs) he bids him or her to come and die. I remember reading that and going, well, that's not what I was thinking this was all about. (laughs) But then as I read scripture, I realized it's all over the place. Jesus comes back to this again and again, that in this life, there is a death to self. There is life here in Christ, but it doesn't look like life, how we often jump to assumptions that what it looks like. And so that's where Jesus is going to take us this morning. Because the question often is for us, how do I go, how do I go deeper into life in Christ? And I'll be honest, I hear this question all the time. I wrestle with this question all the time. How do we find this depth of life? I, I think sometimes it's almost like, what, what will spice up my spiritual life? What will make it more exciting? What will give it depth? What will give it richness? And, and here's the thing. I think so often what we do, what I often do, I'll speak for myself, and you can see if it, you go, yeah, that's me as well. I often want to have all the rights and the privileges and the comforts and the securities, all the stuff all the respect, all, the, all the, the toys of this world. But I also want to have that depth with Christ. And what we see in today's passage, what it builds towards is that what Christ says is, if you want to have life in me, if you really want to know this resurrection life that I just gave to Lazarus in this life, then what Jesus builds to is what we just read in verses 24 and 25 when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In fact, what's going to happen is there's going to be the scene with, as we just read, of Mary washing Jesus' feet with her hair, anointing his feet, and then we're going to see the triumphal entry, which we didn't read in the scripture reading, and then it's going to come to verse 16 when it says his disciples did not understand these things. What was happening with Mary? What was happening in the in the triumphal entry. But when Jesus was glorified, when he died and he rose again, 
Then they remembered that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. In other words, there's something about these two scenes that's going to unlock or unpack or help us see something about what Jesus will say right after then, which is that the key to having life in me, having true, deep life, deeper life than anything in this world, is that you would come and die. You would follow me and you would die to yourself, and there you would find life in me. So what we're going to look at first is the deeper identity that we must seek, the deeper identity. Then we're going to look at the deeper influence that we seek. And then lastly, we're going to look at the deeper invitation, the deeper invitation to life. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this passage. Lord, this is completely countercultural. And Lord, it's not, it's countercultural because, Lord, it is counter to our nature. It's counter to our, our nature as far as falling into sin and de- desiring to make a kingdom in this world. A desire to find life in this world. To find life on our own, to be autonomous, to have our own law, to, to just find life in our wants and our desires. But here, Lord, you call us to find life in you, and that looks like dying to ourselves and rising in you. So, Lord, help us to grasp this. Lord, we're all across this room, in my heart, there are various ways this needs to be applied. I could never address them all, but Spirit, you know. Spirit, would you come? Spirit, would you, would you prepare hearts? Spirit, right now, would you begin to, would you convict our hearts? Would you reveal and expose where we need this word so that your word would find fertile ground in our hearts and in our lives, and it would bear fruit leading to eternal life? And so, Lord, would you do this work? Would you come in your power? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the deeper identity, uh, the context of this, after Lazarus' resurrection, the second half of chapter 11, is all about how they're going to arrest Jesus. Now that Jesus has done the culminating sign of his gospel, he says, at this point, everything has been put in motion. Now he will be betrayed. Now he will be arrested. In fact, that's how chapter 11 closes. It says, now in 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him, Jesus, that they might arrest him. So the whole context going into this is the resurrection has happened of Lazarus, but now they're looking to arrest Jesus. Kind of the, the whole narrative is building to this climactic moment. So it's in this context then that it says in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Why did he go to Bethany? And see, Bethany is right outside of Jerusalem. Bethany is right beside the center of power. Bethany is right in the middle of the crowds of people who want to arrest Jesus, those who are opposed to him. And so therefore, because Jesus knows the time is drawing near, therefore, because he knows they're going to arrest him and they're seeking him, therefore, Jesus goes to the front lines. And, and we get this picture when he gets there because it says he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who he just raised from the dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And, and we have these two sisters from chapter 11. If you weren't here last week, of Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, and, and both of these sisters are in this intimate setting and so this is the picture here of how Jesus, when we're resurrected and have new life in Christ, he, he dines with us as we're going to, at the end of the sermon, we'll come back to communion, that Jesus makes a table and he draws near to us. He wants not just to be united to us, but he wants a relationship. He wants to commune with us and for us to be reconciled to one another. It's a beautiful picture of that that we have here. But also we have here another therefore. See, see, Mary knows that in the midst of it, this is a place where this dinner would have caused a public stir. They know as Jesus comes in, now his fame has spread and everyone's going to be talking about, did you hear Jesus? Who Remember, he did this right outside of Bethany. He raised Lazarus there. Can you imagine if a few days ago somebody had raised somebody from the dead a few blocks from here? And then you heard he was gone, he was missing, and then all of a sudden he comes to a dinner. Do you think word would spread about that? So word is now spreading. They're looking to arrest Jesus, and he goes right out into public and has this meal. And so they know that this meal is going to be this very public display that's probably going to lead to Jesus' arrest. They now know where he is. 
And so it says then in verse 3, Mary therefore, Mary knowing that Jesus is about to be arrested, Mary knowing that he's about to be turned over, therefore Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what, what is Mary doing with this? You may have heard of this. Even if you're like, hey, this is one of the first times I've ever been in church. I've, I've, even though I've never been in a church, I've heard that story. It's a well-known story. So what's happening here? Well, the first thing is what Mary is doing, and we miss this in our context. Mary, knowing that Jesus is about to be turned over and probably executed, this is actually a burial ritual. That what Mary is doing is Mary is acknowledging that Jesus, you will probably be killed. And what Mary is doing is she is anointing his body in the way that they would anoint someone going into the grave. She's acknowledging it. Now, if you think about that for a woman who was incredibly vulnerable in the first century, think about what this would mean for her reputation. Think about what this would mean for her physical safety. What Mary is doing is she is publicly identifying with Jesus. She's publicly saying, I, everything else in this world, my reputation, my life, my head is on the line because, Jesus, you are more valuable to me. And so she's making a statement here, and she's identifying with him in a, a pretty scandalous way. Now, it's not only, though, a burial ritual. What this also is is just a simple act of devotion. See, in the, in the first century, when she washes his feet and she, she gets down and, and they would have been sitting around a table in the first century when they were reclining at a table, they actually would have been sitting at this point with their backs against the table with their feet out. And so what would have happened was their feet are out and Jesus is talking to him and Mary comes up to him with his feet out and she gets down on her knees. And you can imagine this. She takes this, this jar and she breaks it open. It's perfume. She sops it up like a mop with her hair and she begins washing, caressing, taking Jesus' feet and washing them. In the first century, they did not not have indoor or, uh, plumbing. Feet were filthy. Animals were your mode of transportation. They were your industrial equipment. So everywhere you went, there was dung in the streets. Everywhere you went, there, wasn't, there weren't cement streets. There were dirt streets. Everywhere anyone went, their feet were getting mixed up in this. If there was water on the ground, your feet got muddy. Feet were always washed by servants when they came in the door because they were filthy. And what Mary does is she gets down and she, she takes her hair. And Paul, in some of his letters, we see this, where a hair for the woman was her honor. It was her glory. It was a sign of her, her beauty. It was a sign of her just who she is and her attractiveness, her respectability. And she gets down and she, and she soaks up this ointment and she washes Jesus' feet. It is this absolute surrender of who she is, of saying, Jesus, everything about me is yours. Everything about me is poured out to you. And this ointment, we, we see in verse 5 that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. 300 denarii would be equivalent of at least a year's wages in the first century. Uh, some even say this was probably Mary's dowry. That this would have been something she would have given to the family when she was married. That this is, this, no matter whatever it is, this is something extremely valuable. And so what Mary's doing is she's, she's pouring this out. It shows the depth of her devotion to Jesus. And so what do we have here? Mary captures for us what it looks like to truly die to self. And what it looks like is to die to self and have your identity fully in Christ. She's saying what it looks like to have life in Christ is all your possessions, your reputation, your very life. All of your possessions, your body, your, your, your attractiveness, socially, the, the, your following, whatever it is, she lays it all down and she says, it pales in comparison to you. And all of it flows from her with open hands to say, Jesus, this is all for you. And see what the question, because Jesus is going to go there where it says in verse 16 that these things were done so that they would understand something about Jesus when he, and they understood it when he died and was resurrected. And what they realized was the value of Jesus. Their identity has to be completely in him. The sense of who we are, where we find that sense of value in our heart of hearts. 
And it all has to be poured out to him. This is what Jesus, why he goes to, you have to die to yourself. And what it looks like is to find me the most valuable thing in your life. And so the question for us becomes, I think this is where we can get to this, because I was, this is what I was asking myself. What, what am I hesitant to pour out at the feet of Jesus? What, what am I hesitant when I, when I want to be someone who's devoted to Jesus? I want to have life in Jesus, but what are the things that I, I hold to, I cling to? I say, this is mine. Jesus, this is the one thing. Is it, is it my children? Is it my reputation? Is it my comfort? Is it my security? Mary lays everything down and she says, Jesus, with all these things, I want to make much of you. But often what we do is we claim that we want to make much of Jesus, but there are things that we withhold and we say, Jesus, not this thing. Not this thing. And so what Jesus says, the call to come and die is the call to relinquish to me everything you have, everything you are for me. And what happens with that is when you do that, then you begin to experience the joy that is in Christ. You begin to experience the joy that is in him when you realize, when you relinquish these things, these weren't the things that gave me life the whole time. Now, what's interesting is then we have it kind of Mary is like juxtaposed to Judas. Because while uh, Mary pours it out, Judas then comes in. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. Because he go, Well, maybe Judas is a good guy. I heard he had a bad reputation, but hey, he's concerned about the poor. No, he didn't do this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, what is going on here? First, I would say on that last line, Jesus isn't one. I know that last line is a little tricky. What's Jesus mean? You have the poor always with you. Is Jesus saying, don't serve the poor? He's not giving like a philosophy or his, minist- his approach to the poor or to, to those and helping them. He's not saying, no, never worry about that. Jesus here in the context, this line is always in the context of responding to Judas. And he's calling Judas's bluff. He's saying, oh, wait, Judas, you really want to use the money back to serve the poor? Guess what? When I'm gone, you'll have all the rest of the time to be able to give the money to the poor. Go ahead, buddy. That's actually what he's saying. He's calling Judas's bluff. He's revealing the pretense. In fact, this is in the other gospels. This is when Judas finally goes and begins to make plans to turn him over. Judas is so angered by it. But what is Jesus doing here? What's going on in Judas? See, what Judas has is not a deeper identity in Christ like Mary. Judas has a shallow identity. And we don't know. Judas seems to have this identity that's built around money. He, he, he's always going after the purse. He always wants money. This is the only time that we're told he's a thief. But what's going on there is we, we don't know what Judas wanted to do with the money. We don't know if he wanted to buy a bunch of stuff, if he wanted a new sports car. We don't know if he just liked the like, social prestige that it gave him to have a lot of coin, right? We don't know what exactly it was. But what we do know was that Judas found that in money, he could get what he really found most valuable. And so what happened with Judas is that Judas will pour himself out. He will give the energy of his life. He will rationalize things. He will do things that follow where his heart has gone and where it's anchored even to the extent that he would betray his best friend and sell Jesus for just a few coins. In fact, I would say while Mary poured herself out in this, Judas will eventually, when he commits suicide, he says he, he was poured out in the field, his guts were poured out. And we see the end of it. His life was poured out, but it was poured out for something that could not satisfy him. And what happened was it took a hold of him and he's called a thief because it became the the whole culmination of who he is because everything in his life is just about getting more money no matter what. And it takes over him. See, what's being said here is one, and broadly, we have to have an identity in Christ or else we will try to find our identity in things in this world and it won't go well. We'll become enslaved to those things. But then, and, and those things that we're unwilling to pour out to Jesus, to give to him, Jesus never says you shouldn't have possessions. Jesus doesn't say you, doesn't say you shouldn't have food in the fridge. You shouldn't have money in the bank. You shouldn't have a, a car. You shouldn't have a house. Jesus never says these things. But what Jesus does say is if you hold on to these things that are good things that I've given to you and you're not willing to relinquish them and use them and they become more important in your life than me, then your soul will go down a rabbit trail. It will go down a back alley that will not end well. So are you willing to hold it with open hands? And... 
I think there's also something more specific for us as Christians that's really important to notice here, which is we can easily, if we can claim that we're Christians, we can claim to be following Jesus, and the whole time it can be a complete facade where our hearts really lust after power, our hearts really lust after authority, our hearts really lust after something other than Jesus. But then we leverage our faith, we leverage language, we leverage those titles, we leverage those roles, just as a way to really get what we want. Now, when actually the whole time we're serving ourselves, and so Jesus says the call to come and die is a call to find a deeper identity and mean to relinquish everything of your life to me, including your very self, and find yourself in me. Now, it's really important because look at what happens next with Lazarus in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I, th I think one of the reasons why this is included here is not only because historically it's true and it's setting up how Jesus is going to be turned over, but also to say, if we don't have a devotion to Jesus like Mary, then when the moment comes in our life, because it will, where we may not be, if we follow Jesus and we follow in the way of Christ, if we confess Christ, if we live lives of obedience to Jesus, there will come a point in our lives where it will put our reputation on the line. There will come a point in our lives where our social standing will be put on the line. In other words, we may not be threatened to be physically killed, but we can be socially canceled. And while we know we wouldn't, we wouldn't go, well, I'll, here's a couple coins, I'll turn in Jesus and trade them. At the same time, it's so quick that we would deny and we would betray Jesus for whatever it is at the end of the day that we won't relinquish. We'll come back to this a little bit, but I think this is something that in the West, our discipleship as Christians in the West has largely been in a context of comfort. It's largely been in a cultural context in which we were in a place where it was, it was morally good to be a Christian. You got social currency for being a Christian, right? You couldn't even get into politics 70 years ago unless you were a good standing of the Episcopalian Church downtown or the Presbyterian Church, right? Like, we are no longer in that place. And so now our discipleship has to ask the question, when we follow Jesus, are we willing to die to our reputations? Are we willing to die to our salary, to our comforts, to our advancement, even if it means that we would make much of Christ? We'll come back to that. But I think one of the things here, just quickly, is what, what habits, what actions, what relationships do you have in your life that cultivate and deepen your devotion, your identity in Jesus? So one of the things, on one hand, you can take stock. Man, are there things that I'm not willing to let go of? But on the other hand, to go, are there relationships? Are there patterns in your life? What are, what are ones you can establish that help you to deepen that devotion to Christ? Now, if we have that deeper identity, what it's going to do is it's also going to lead to a deeper influence in the world around us. Uh, let's go next to the triumphal entry. In verse 12, it says, The next day a large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of, of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, this scene of the triumphal entry is found in all four Gospels. It's one of the rare uh, scenes that's found in all of them. I think only about 20% of the scenes are in all of the Gospels. So that's important. You know it's an important scene. Uh, but what's interesting about John's accounting here is it's the shortest, it's the briefest of all of the, uh, of all the accounts and all the Gospels. It's almost as if John has stripped down this scene to its basic meaning. Because we're only going to have a few verses here about it. And so he says that they come out and they're waving palm branches. So what, what are the people doing here? Well, the, this, this, this had become a custom in the ancient Near East, especially around Jerusalem. And it had started, if you remember, a few weeks ago with the Feast of Tabernacles with the Maccabees. And it started at this time where they cut down their palm trees all around. They cut down branches. And they would just, as a ruler, a new ruler, a conqueror, a liberator would come into the town. As they paraded in, they would wave the palm branches and, and bless is he, Hosanna, praise God, our liberator, our savior, our new king. He has come. And so that's what's happening here. The only thing is, what's happening here is not exactly what they normally think is happening. There's a bunch of irony in this scene. Because look what Jesus does, 
right? So it's all like, imagine like, this is like a scene from Aladdin, right? Like, do, 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 do. you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know the song. And the genie's there, it's a pew, pew, right? And everyone's dancing and acrobats, you're like, this is a king, right? Watch what Jesus does. It says in verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, I, I tell the Aladdin story, but what they would have done in the first century is this would have been, they would have ridden it not on a donkey, but a war horse. High up on a war, have you ever been next to a war horse? They're humongous. They would ride in on a war horse and you'd have the battalions marching beside the king. The king would have on his full regalia. They'd been playing trumpets. You'd have those marching servants. Oftentimes when they came into the, into the city, they would have um, anyone they conquered. They'd be walking in chained as they walk in to show these are the new servants who will serve me. The soldiers are there. They have the swords and the, whatever great chariots or military equipment of their day. And they march in regally and everyone's, yes. Hosanna, the liberator, the king. In fact, actually, this is where the term gospel comes from because often what they would do, gospel is a term that meant the good news, and what they would do is say, this is the gospel of my reign. And they would run ahead, and they would have messages, and they'd say, see the gospel of Caesar. This is a scene of a military conqueror coming into the scene, but Jesus doesn't come in on a war horse. The king is coming. The liberator is coming. Here he comes. Get ready for the parade, the ticker tape parade, and everyone's ready. Hosanna, Hosanna. And here comes Jesus, not, you know, on his noble steed, but on his little donkey down near the ground. Yeehaw, right? <laughs> Slowly going through, maybe his feet dragging on the ground. All of his disciples walking with him dressed in their normal garb. None of the pomp, none of the circumstance. And everyone's, Hosanna. you can imagine like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're kind of like, uh, Hosanna, right? This is the guy, right? This, <laughs> this is the right guy. Did we time this wrong? Right? You can imagine the disciples are like walking in here like, hey. <laughs> this is awkward. The whole scene here is meant to be subversive. It's meant to be ironic. They're expecting this liberator, and they're expecting a king. And here's the thing, they're getting their king. They're getting their liberator. But it doesn't come in the form that they usually expect. Um, let me read from this, this quote here in verse 15 comes from Zechariah 9. Let me read it in its context. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So Jesus, this prophecy is saying, this humble king, this one who will come on a donkey, this one who will come without swords and chariots and whatnot, he'll conquer the war horses. He'll conquer the chariots. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless depth, the waterless pit. He's saying, I have come to liberate you. I have come to conquer your enemy. I have come to set you free. I have come to make the lame walk. I have come to conquer the grave. But I have also not come by military conquest. I have come for heart conquest. Jesus will reign, and, but the disciples are perplexed. This is why the next verse, verse 16, it says, they didn't understand what was going on the whole time. They're baffled until they see the way that he would conquer the enemy of death and sin by dying on a cross. He didn't ascend up to a war horse. He ascended up a tree. He died for his people. Jesus here is capturing the sort of way that he would bring his power, that he would change the world, the way he would influence everything. It's different than what we normally expect. Not through ascending the worldly forms of power, but ascending to a cross to die. And here's the thing, why Jesus then afterwards, down in verses 24 and 25, will say, and also you must die. He's showing us the path. 
the path that we must follow, the path of where kingdom power, of influence, where it comes, where his power comes in our world, not in the forms that we normally think it does. It comes through lives devoted first, a deeper identity in Jesus, devoted to Jesus, given for Jesus, relinquishing themselves, laid down for him, and then also the message of a man who dies on a cross, a king who dies, the God-man, for his people to conquer their ultimate enemy, death. The call to die here is to die to the assumption that our influence must come in worldly forms. Now, let me see. Here's the thing. Shallow influence says if we get certain forms of power, institutional, if we have government, military, education, financial, market, cultural, media, then if we have those forms of power, if we could just get those forms of power, if we could get that war horse, if we could get that chariot, then, then salvation could come. Then there'd be influence. But deeper, the deeper influence that Jesus calls to is to recognize that even if we don't get those things, the way of the cross and the message of the cross is what changes the world. Now, what I want to say is we should seek to have influence in the cultural corridors of power. I think we should vie to have positions and institutions and in different places throughout our culture, whether it's education or politics, government or law or whatnot. We should look to have influence there. But we must never remember that, that those positions are not the actual source of our power. That's not where true influence ultimately comes. The influence actually comes from the gospel. I've, I've been thinking about this because here's the thing. I think we should strive for religious liberty. We should strive for Christian witness and media, education. But we should do all that as best we can. But it's not the source of our power. Because here's the thing. Those things we should vie for. But what if we lose those things? Do we all of a sudden no longer have influence? Does the kingdom not advance? I, I've been thinking about this. I was just talking to someone this morning. I, I tend to watch for years. I've About 10 years. I've, I found the bellwether culturally of church culture, where culture goes, to be watching what happens in Australia. They're usually about three to five years ahead of things that happen here. Most uh, massive or major things that have happened culturally and changes have happened there and then come here a few years later. So I follow a lot of pastors there. I follow a lot of what goes on in the news. And one of the things this last week that's kind of caused a big hubbub, you may have heard of it, but there's, uh, I think it's Andrew Thornburn. Um, he's, I'm not sure if it's president. I don't understand how soccer works, but it's like president of a soccer club or league or whatnot. And he was, he was hired and it was all good. Everyone's excited. He's a nice guy. And then somebody discovered a sermon from his pastor back in 2013 where he had been uh, talked about the sinfulness of homosexuality. He just taught the Bible. And because of the association with it, now Thornburg has been forced out. And, and what it's caused is because it was such a high level, and they're seeing this throughout Australia, and it's kind of caused this change where, and here's why I say this. I think so long our discipleship has assumed the whole point is to get people into levers of power, then we can have influence as a church. But what happens if now, for instance, in this case, you start to see like some kind of faith-based glass ceiling? Thornburg, I heard, I read yesterday, updated on the story. He is going to sue, and he should make use of all means possible in the legal system while they're still there. Not saying he shouldn't. He should. I think we should. At the same time, the question becomes, where does the real influence, where does the real power ultimately come from? And even if we were to lose those things, the real power comes when Christians are willing to die to clinging to those things and then living lives that proclaim Christ and living even when they lose their reputations, even when they lose their positions, even when they lose their finances, even when they lose these things. And as I'm saying these things, believe me, I feel the weightiness of this. And here's the thing. You may be saying, but, but don't you get, and I get a lot of things say it was when Christians had influence in different things. That's what changes societies. But here's the thing. These first century Christians, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? We now in the modern world assume we must have cultural influence in order to be able to see the gospel go forward in the kingdom to advance, the reign of Jesus to come. But here's the thing. Those first century Christians, they wouldn't have thought any of those things. 
These first century Christians never knew cultural power. These were first century Christians were the ones who had no economic standing. They had no place in the governing, political, military, educational, institutional, economic, cultural forms of power. They had none of it. Yet in Acts, within a few years, it says they turned the world upside down. And that should make us pause. That should make us marvel. Because God has done this again and again, that it's actually when Christians are often forced to the margins of society and they begin as they do it, whether they completely lose things or not, but as they let go of and they relinquish and they die to grabbing a hold of those things and they're willing then to say, what are the simple ways in my life that I will be faithful to Jesus? And yes, I will have a life devoted to him and I will speak of him and I will serve my neighbor and I will seek them no matter what comes. See, what Paul says in Corinthians, right at the heart of the cultural power of the Greeks, he told them this. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. We looked a few weeks ago at the fact that it was Christians in the first centuries who were at the margins of society, who were willing to serve, who turned the world upside down and made the world as we know it today. Because they were willing to save the babies out of the dumpsters, they were willing to start the hospitals, they were willing to be with the sick. They were willing to share the gospel with those who are in prison. They were willing to bring the message of a king who would die for his people, even at great loss to themselves and oftentimes at their own lives. And that, that made the world pause and take account. Because think about it, all these, look at the result, what happens. And by verse 19, Jesus comes in and it makes everyone go, well, that's not normal. And by verse 19, it says, the whole world, see, see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. He didn't come as one of the kings they expected. He didn't come, but something about him, something about his teaching, something about who he is, and the whole world goes after him because the whole world is tired of the pomp. The whole world is tired of the dog and pony show. The whole world is tired of the marketing and the airbrushing and the CGI effects and the framing of, and filtering of every little thing. The world knows deep down what we need is not another celebrity. Not another person with a cool marketing trick or another product to sell. What the world needs most is the world needs a king who comes, puts his finger on the very problem that we have underneath everything else and says, I will give you life. You need to die. You can't fight it in this world. When they see him and they hear that message, they say, this is him. This is the one. One of the one of the phrasings or quotes that stuck with me over the years is by a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I love that name. I can't help but say it like that. He's an old Moravian pastor, and he said this, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. So that's the purpose of, he said, that's the purpose of my life. And, and let me just ask you this. Are you okay with that legacy? I, every now and then I come back to this, and I, I challenge myself the call to die in Christ is the call not to not have influence in the world. I think I said that right. We're to have influence. The church should see the world in every generation take note of the gospel of Jesus Christ in powerful, unexpected, and amazing ways. But it often doesn't come in the ways we would like it to happen in the forms that we as believers would like it to happen where we can have the kingdom and the crown of this world as well as the kingdom and the crown of the next world. And often it's when we're willing to relinquish the crown of this world and say, I can be forgotten in this world, but I'll tell you what my treasure is because I can't lose it and he won't let go of me. And when your neighbors see that, when the public sees that, when social media sees that, I'm telling you, in the midst of all the pomp in the world around us, that message cuts through because they see it not only in your words, but in your life. 
Now with this, lastly, the deeper invitation. The disciples tell Jesus the world is looking for him. Verse 20 and 22, it builds where they say, the world is looking for you. It's the culmination. And these are the Greeks, it says, who are looking for him. So now, John, all the Greeks, they're the sophisticated philosophical ones, and they're coming in. It's like, Rome, the Greeks, everyone, you've made it to the world stage, Jesus. Your public ministry, it's drawing them in. The crowds are coming. And so it's this moment where you imagine the crowds are like, Jesus, 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 right? You imagine, like, you, you would, let's be honest, we all daydream about, like, when you listen to music, like, being up there, like, playing in a rock concert, and everyone's like, yeah, and you're just like, yeah, right? You're just like, yeah, right? Like, we all dream of this moment, right? It's in our nature, right? Sorry, is it only me? Uh, but you can imagine the disciples, and when they hear this, they're like, let's go, Jesus. Let's go. This is the moment. It's when you make, your, you make your entry. And Jesus says in verses 23 and 26, it's in that context that Jesus says, let me tell you what your disposition, what at the core of everything you've just seen and where I'm about to head, what is at the core of finding life in the middle of all the triumphs and middle of all the achievements, in the middle of all the successes, in the middle of the ups and the downs. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is where true glory will come. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says that the purpose of his life is to be like a grain that falls to the ground, and it dies, and out of that life comes. And he says that's the purpose of our life as well. The purpose of our resurrection life is like that grain. He's saying when you come out of the tomb and you're, ro- you're raised again, the purpose of your life is not to try to just stay on that vine, to hoard everything you can, to try to be as, as people to be as jealous as possible of you, to stand on the top of the hierarchy. Those things may happen accidentally. But the purpose of your life is not to try to stay there, but the purpose of your life, of that resurrection life, is that now because you no longer have fear of death is that you can fall to the ground and you can die and life can come forward. You can die. And what Jesus says is hate having life, hate taking hold of a life that says, no, find life in this world. He says, don't live in that way that hoards everything and that doesn't schedules people out of your life and tries to isolate you from everyone and, and just tries to have life for yourself. That doesn't speak up and share the gospel with those around you. That just tries to cling to your reputation. She's saying, hate that kind of life because that's no life at all. You'll cling to something that'll eventually just perish anyways. Saying, don't cling to that lie. I know I've used this illustration before. Maybe for some of you it's new, but I'll just insert it real quick here. The story of the boy playing Monopoly. This is a famous story. Boy's playing Monopoly with his family. They're all around. You never play Monopoly with your family, by the way. That's the first step in family counseling. But <laughs> playing Monopoly with his family, grandma's there. And during the game, the boy's like cleaning it. He's round and go, right? He's going around. He's getting all the money. He's getting all the, all the possessions and all the real estate. And then at the end, everyone by the end is so annoyed by him, they leave, except for his grandmother. And when he wins, the grandmother, okay. And she says, now are you ready for the true lesson of the game? She says, it all goes back in the box. And they slowly put all the pieces back into the box. She said, this is life. You can live for going around as many times as you can and lapping everyone. You, you can live for all the little houses and you can live for all the, the cool stuff and you can live for all, just all the stacks of money and you can live for that. Now, again, I just want to, again and again, it's not those things are bad. God provides in different ways for different individuals to have different levels of things. But in the end, if you live for what will go in the box and you're not able to enjoy those things knowing they're open, God may bring them into my life. He may bring these things out of my life. He may take them. He may give them away. 
But ultimately, my life is something that doesn't fit into that box at the end and go on the ground. My life is one that lives on for eternity. And I'm going to invest every single thing on this board as much as I can in the time I have for what lasts beyond the box. And Jesus is saying, if you live for the box, hate that. Hate getting trapped in that mindset that just gets, tries to just compete and get every little thing because it goes into the box. And he's saying, no matter what you have, what level of possessions, live with hands open where you get to see where the possessions of your life, it's like letting them fall to the ground and die where they don't just stay with you and you get to hoard it, but instead they go outward and you see how it blesses others. How you get to do that with your time, how you get to do that with your energy, how you get to do that with your stuff. And, and you get to do that in your witness with others where it's, you're not hoarding your reputation and just hoarding comfort and hoarding security, but instead being willing because you see the coworkers and the neighbors living for the box. You're going, I don't want you to live for the box. I hate that for you. I want you to know life. And so you walk with them and you share with them and you say, I will die to my reputation. I'll die to what you think of me in order that you might have life. And I'll let, leave it up to God where that goes. See, what Jesus is saying here is your life is meant to be laid down. Your life is meant not when you're resurrected just to stay in the earbud and, and keep everything as close to the chest as you can, but to lay it down. And listen, I know that many of you may be thinking, man, I've, I've done that. I've given that time. I've given that stuff away. And man, it didn't get the response. Like what happened was people just disrespected me and people disarmed me. They rejected me. I think that's why Jesus ends where he ends here. Because I think so often what happens is we assume, and guys, I, I struggle with this all the time. Why did somebody get angry at me for repeating what the Bible says? And then I'm, I'm frustrated with that, and all these thoughts go in my head, and I'm bitter. And then ultimately, I read Scripture, and I'm like, wait, God promised me the whole time that's what would happen. <laughs> what Jesus is modeling for us here is he's saying, if you follow me, you're going to follow me with my words. You're going to follow me with my, my actions. You're going to follow me with my life. And guess what? Even me, they put up on a cross. And the same will happen to you. And so if you're so worried about clinging to this life in this world, what happens? And, and one of those things, the last thing we have to let go of is just the respect of others. Because ultimately what happens when others reject us, I think the reason why it's so traumatizing, the reason why it hurts is because our assumptions are that that would never happen. And that's not part of the deal. That's right at the core of the deal. That we identify with Jesus, we will be rejected with Jesus. The closer we are to Jesus and our lives match Jesus and we find life in him, the more we will be rejected in this world. That will happen. But what does Jesus say? This is why Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What Jesus says is the true honoring that you're after in your life, that your soul longs for that true respect, that affirmation, ultimately is never going to be satisfied no matter how many people you serve or how, not, you know, how much people respond to you. In this world, it will never be satisfied. Your spouse can't even satisfy that, no matter how good your marriage is. But ultimately, that honoring comes from knowing deep down, sensing that the Father is honored, that the Father honors you, that he delights in you, that he sees what you're doing. It's like when Stephen, who's stoned, the crowds reject him. And as he's dying, he stands, he's able to persevere through it because he sees Jesus standing in the heavens. And what Jesus is saying is when you're rejected and when you serve and when you lay your life down and it's trampled on, what he's saying in the midst of that, what will happen is if you will come to me and you will not grow bitter, you will not lash out. As we've said before, don't reject Jesus. Don't be robbed of what Christ has done before, for you because of what somebody has done to you you don't run, but instead you lean in and you go to God and you cry out to him and you bring your heart to him, what you'll see is he'll say, I know because I've gone before you and I did it for you and I did it so you would have life and you would not live for the box, but that you would have everlasting life in me. And so follow me so that others may have life as well. Now I know this is an invitation to a deeper kind of life. It's not something you're going to probably hear champion on Good Morning America. <laughs> and here's what I'll end with. You may say, you know, how can I invite other people into this? How could I possibly want to live in this? 
How could I possibly want to die to myself? How, how could I really take hold of that? Why is that good news? And here's the thing. Here's where I would end. I, I would respond, aren't we already killing ourselves every day? The modern mantra to find yourself, follow your desires, make something of yourself. But let's be honest, guys, how do we do it? How do we go about doing it? We do it by giving ourselves away. We give ourselves away to every person's opinion. We give ourselves away to every product that's being sold. We give ourselves away to every movement that comes about. We're constantly giving ourselves away. We kill ourselves to get the car, the house, the lifestyle, just to keep up with the Joneses, whoever those Joneses are. I'm like, who are the Joneses? These mythological Joneses. We debase ourselves to get chicks, clicks, and likes. Mutilate our bodies to transition. We beat our bodies to look like celebrities. And it's all a lie to say we are finding ourselves. See, what's happening in the modern world is while we're saying we can find ourselves and we can assert ourselves, what's actually happening is we're dying a thousand deaths every day. We're dying to live. In other words, this is not a question of if your life will fall to the ground and die. The question is, will what your life falls to the ground and dies in, who it is, will they actually give you life? You'll give your life to something. Will he give you life? Will it give you life? And Jesus says, if you lose your life to anything other than me, if you live for the box, and what happens is you'll die a thousand deaths before they one day bury you. Instead, he says, find life in me. Come to me and die to yourself because then that is when you shall live. Because only in me will your life bear fruit to eternal life. Only in me will the seed of your life bear fruit for eternity. That is the deeper invitation to a deeper life. But Jesus says, when I call you to follow me, I bid you to come and die so that you might truly live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, for this is not a truth that we cling to often in our culture. Lord, help us to find where we're clinging to things in this world for life that don't give life. Lord, help us to relinquish them. Even the good things in our life, Lord, help us to just... Hold them with open hands. Lord, I pray for those in this room who you have blessed, you've given great talents to, you've given great resources to, Lord, just that they would sense the great calling upon their life to hold with open hands, that they would find, and Lord, that they would find great joy in that, that there'd be honor in that. Lord, I pray for those who are, are growing in their influence and have those things. Lord, they wouldn't grow, hold on to those things. They wouldn't scorn those things. But Lord, they would just keep their eyes on you, their joy in you. And Lord, in those things, they would hold those with open hands. Lord, help us to be shrewd as you call us to be shrewd. Help us to be peaceful like doves. Lord, help us to find that balanced spirit. Would you guide each and every one of us for what this means for our lives? Lord, don't allow this to be overly and unnecessarily prescriptive. But Lord, allow this to land, Spirit, in the way that you would come with conviction so we don't live for the box, but Lord, we would live for eternal life and we would find joy in falling to the ground and dying and Lord, seeing you do amazing things. Lord, would you guide each and every person here so Lord, we might have life in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.